You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello and welcome to the Reinventing America Schools Reports on the Radically Pragmatic Podcast. My name is Tressa Pankovitz and I am co-director of the Reinventing America Schools Project at Progressive Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. At Reinventing America Schools, we advocate for 21st century school systems that are designed to meet today's knowledge economy. By that, we mean high quality schools that are autonomous, accountable, and offer parents increased educational choices for their children. I am so excited for today's episode because I am honored to be joined by two female legislators who are advocating for students and moving the needle in New Mexico. I will let these two amazing ladies introduce themselves. But first, I want to frame the conversation by saying they are the co-sponsors of a bill recently signed into law by New Mexico's governor that will make it easier for public charter schools to build, purchase, or lease buildings. House Bill 43, titled the Charter School Facilities Improvement Act, is a big deal because public charter schools don't have the same taxing authorities that traditional school districts do. That means it's much more difficult for them to raise capital for facility improvements. I want to emphasize that both of these legislators come to this work as educators. Between them, they have decades of experience, including as a former public school teachers, special education director, and school psychologist. We have with us today, Senator Saya Correa Hemphill, and Representative Joy Garrett. I'm gonna start with you, Representative Garrett, if you wanna tell us a little bit about how you came to the legislature and what your issues are and uh, a little bit about your background. Thank you, Tressa. It's a pleasure to be here today with the two of you. I recently retired after 28 years in education and I taught K through 12. I was an English as a second language teacher, social studies, a language arts teacher. I served as an instructional coach for a public elementary school with about 1,100 students, uh, predominantly Hispanic, Native American, a uh, small percentage of African Americans, as New Mexico does not have a large African American population. And I've also served extensively as a middle school teacher. I've taught on the East Coast, the West Coast, and Los Angeles, and also overseas. I taught English, um, and I taught middle school students in an international program. So because of this experience, I was motivated to run for the house. My primary issue is education, but also uh, business development, entrepreneurship, um, and health. So. This education is my main focus, though, to ensure that our students' needs are met and our educators' needs are met and our families' needs are are met. So that's where I'm coming from. Uh, Also, I'm a parent of a student who has been homeschooled, charter schooled, public schooled, alternative schooled, and finally ended with a GED. 
So I've been through the gamut as a parent as well as educator. Well, New That's Mexico is lucky to have um, you in their legislature uh, with all of that experience. You would certainly be able to speak with authority. And I'm sure when you weigh in on policy debates, um, it's quite substantive. Thanks for that. Um, Senator Sia Correa Hemphill, um, tell us your story. So I am Senator Sia Correa Hemphill. I'm from Southern New Mexico. I started out as a kindergarten teacher back in 1994. So this is my 28th year in education. I have a son, he just turned 26, who was born with a rare genetic syndrome called Rothman-Thompson syndrome. He developed osteosarcoma, which is bone cancer, when he was four years old and had to have his leg amputated and a year of chemotherapy. And we spent a lot of time just navigating the special education system. And he was really my inspiration for getting a master's in school psychology. And eventually I became a special ed director just because it's such a passion of mine to be able to advocate for children with disabilities and families. And it was also very challenging navigating our healthcare system. And those were the things that really inspired me to want to run for office because I live in rural New Mexico. It was very challenging trying to navigate our healthcare system and get him his medical equipment that he needed. He's in a wheelchair now. He's been in a wheelchair since he was four when he had his leg amputated. And I wanted to have a platform so I could advocate for those in our community who are most vulnerable. And I have four children now. Um, they age in, range in age from 29 all the way to nine. So there's a 20 year spread, but um, they keep me on my toes. It's really busy, but I have an amazing husband who offers just a, an incredible amount of support so that I can serve our state. So the parents of New Mexico in your district must be so thrilled to have an advocate like you in the state Senate. Um, have you have you had much interaction with your constituents on these special education issues? Yes, I do spend a lot of time with my constituents and it was incredibly rewarding and brought me to tears this session because we were able to provide full funding for a program called the Developmental Disability um, Support Waiver. So children who have disabilities and meet certain criteria who have more extensive disabilities and need more support in order to access our community, they qualify for the DD waiver. And there was, when Nicholas, my son, was first applied, there was a 10-year, over a 10-year waiting list. Um, so th those families did not receive support for over 10 years. And so with uh, our budget this year, we had a historically high budget and we were able to provide full funding for the DD waiver so that families and children with disabilities don't have to wait such an extensive amount of time any longer to receive those supports. And so that was incredibly meaningful. We had our whole gallery was full of children and families with children with disabilities. And it was just uh, one of the most rewarding parts of serving on the in the state legislature was seeing those families, knowing the incredible challenges that they had to encounter just to be there in Santa Fe. Um, many people, unless you've 
have to be in a wheelchair. You don't understand all the challenges trying to load and unload a wheelchair and travel with a wheelchair. So um, I, I know the sacrifices they made just to be there and to be part of that um, huge transition to being able to provide that support for those families was, was really meaningful. So I love being able to reach out to families in the community and, and share what we're doing up in Santa Fe and just like with this bill. So um, it's really been uh, an incredible experience. Yeah, sounds like it. That must have been quite a day in, yes. the, in the state capitol. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about this bill, um, which is also meeting a need uh, for families who have been forced often to wait, um, not for necessarily special education services, but for a decent building um, for their students to their children to attend school in. And I'm going to start with Representative Garrett because you were the lead sponsor on House Bill 43 and um, were instrumental in getting it unanimously passed in uh, the House, whereas SIA, it was also unanimously passed in the Senate. But um, Representative Garrett, go ahead and tell us uh, how this just all came to be and what the bill is all about. So House Bill 43 is the Charter School Facilities Act, and it's been several years in the making. Um, the advocates, especially the Charter School Organization New Mexico leaders, have been working on it. And, and I think a key point that I just want to preface my comments with is our charter school advocates have really improved in their capacity to communicate. I think when you're trying to get any legislation that may face some opposition by people on philosophical or whatever financial basis, that communication is a really important piece. So strategically, they started in the House and the bill creates a revolving charter school facilities fund in our New, Mex New Mexico Finance Authority. And that money can be given then, it can be applied to for charter schools that have past one renewal process. Renewal takes five or six years. And so part of the reason why the bill passed unanimously is it targets schools that have a proven track record. Academically, they're doing what they said their mission was. Financially, they have been vetted. Two years of their audits are reviewed. Um, and so it makes a lot of sense to people that may or may not be extremely pro-charter. So they really did their homework. They really communicated. The other thing is, it um, in the past, facilities were based on classroom facilities for charters. This is increases to the fact that halls, bathrooms should all be included. Um, it also keeps money in state. Many of the charters for their lease agreements were going out of state for funding. This not only creates a fund, but it keeps the money inside of New Mexico. So, and, and then a third part of the bill that um, was like a cleanup intentionality was that when school districts do bonding, they have to include the charter schools. And there's a clear deadline for a charter school to get to be informed of the bonding and um, to make sure that time is allowed for both sides. The other aspect of that is a district 
has to notify charters on a specific timetable when they have facilities available for charter use. So all around, it really facilitates better communication between charters and the districts that they're in. We have uh, charters authorized by school districts and we have charters authorized by the state. But based on the location of the charter, the local district has to communicate space situations and bonding. So, so those are some key elements. You know, what you mentioned about the district sharing information with the charter schools about unused space, that's, that's a really big issue here in Washington, D.C. Um, the D.C. public schools have a lot of unused buildings and huge charter school waiting lists in the district, but it has been um, very hard to shake loose some of those buildings that could be being put to wonderful use um, for kids in the district who, who are locked out of a charter school just because of lack of seats. And for the audience, I should mention that um, according to the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, currently in New Mexico, there are 98 charter schools in 28 communities, and they serve about 30,000 students. Um, so that, that's a, a fairly good number of kids. And of those, about 59% uh, are Latino and 57%, so more than half of those students are eligible for free and reduced lunch, which is how the government um, measures low-income children in uh, in public schools. So Senator Hemphill, um, I read an article in the Las Cruces Sun News that you had um, recently visited a charter school called Deming Cesar Chavez Charter School. Um, the article said that that school was built in 1953 and still is in use, that building. Um, tell us about that and how that um, kind of reflects the need that this bill is is designed to fill in New Mexico. Right. Um, that was such a rewarding tour that we went on. I uh, went to the Deming Caesar Chavez Charter School last week, and it's located, just like you said, in an aging building that was built in 1953. It's a former elementary school. In addition to having some challenges with plumbing, and they don't have any hot water in the, the bathroom. So they only have cold water and they have a lot of issues like that. But the biggest challenge for them is there's such a need. They, they serve a population of non-traditional students who have not been successful in the traditional public schools. And this is kind of their, their last shot at being able to be successful completing high school. And they have a, a large population of Hispanic students who have had other challenges in their life, who maybe um, don't have a solid home life. And so this is an incredibly warm, inviting school community who obviously these students really respect and love the, the staff there. And the staff told me about the incredible challenges that they've encountered with the facility, but how important it is for them to continue teaching in this environment because of this warm sense of being a community and, and a school family. And you could see that, you could feel that. It's a visceral feeling when you walk into that school. It just feels good to be there. 
And because the need is so great in this community, they've been very limited not having access to more funds to improve their facility or expand their facility. And so with this new revolving loan fund that they're going to be able to access, they're going to be able to serve the students that they are currently serving in a much more productive way. So currently, many schools, many charter schools have to rely on operational money that could go into the classroom, but because they haven't been able to access their any additional funds for facility improvements, that money could go into the classroom, but they're having to use it to address um, critical needs with their facility. And so this is gonna give them an opportunity to invest more in their student population and this high needs po um, population of students that they, they work with. So it was wonderful to, to be able to tour that school. And to me, that's what charter schools really represent is to, uh, an ability to have a little more flexibility to provide for the needs of children who may have uh, extenuating cir circumstances that prevent them from reaching their full potential in the public school who in the traditional public school who may have dropped out or may have gotten into more trouble there um, this provides them a smaller school environment where they're really able to connect with the staff and connect with each other and receive that nurturing support that really helps them be successful and they have an incredibly high graduation rate. I think it was in the 90 percentile, which is unheard of uh, in New Mexico. So I'm really proud of the work that they're doing and helping these students not only be successful getting their diploma, but having that sense of community too and feeling like they're really providing um, something unique to, to the community and to each other. Representative Garrett, have you also observed um, places where there's a great need for an improved building or um, even just because of the cost of the building, classroom services have been compromised? Yeah, my husband actually taught at a school that started in a church building that um, had very unsafe uh, exits and entrances. Um, and, and that's the case, often a charter school starts uh, due to funding in a substandard uh, facility that doesn't really promote health and safety. And that's why I was a strong supporter of this bill because we really, you know, we have our academic missions, but we also have to make sure that we have safe and ideally, um, you know, accessible to handicap. Many of our facilities, you go up a rickety set of stairs and if you can't do those stairs, you can't get in the classroom. So that, that was really important to me. Also, the bill allows you not only to improve your facility, you can construct a facility, pay off your lease. There's multiple avenues that the money in the revolving fund can be used. So it addresses the varied needs of the range of our charter schools. That's really good to hear. And it's unfortunate that there aren't more broad-minded uh, places that are, are providing these, although we're starting to see them. Um, Senator Hemphill, how did you win over uh, colleagues who may have been skeptical in the Senate? Well, honestly, one of the most rewarding experiences of serving the legislature as a school psychologist has been 
developing those relationships. I know how important it is to build relationships and we're all designed to, to want that connection and to do better when we feel connected to other people. So last year was my first year in the legislature and we were coming in under incredible circumstances. Um, our capital was blocked off. We had the National Guard there. Um, there were tanks, there were guns. Um, we had barbed wire around the, the Capitol, limiting our access to our public. The public could not come in as readily as in the past, but also we were limited interacting with each other. We were divided. We had um, plexiglass dividing us, trying to keep us safe in the early stages of the pandemic. So this session, it was quite a bit different. The Capitol was open to the public. We did have more opportunities to build those relationships with other senators. And that was my focus. It was a really rewarding opportunity to build those relationships. And when you can talk to people ahead of time, share the bill, answer questions ahead of time, that makes all the difference in the world. And it was a great learning experience about how valuable that time is that you can invest prior to going to the Senate floor to debate a bill when you've had those conversations ahead of time and addressed any concerns and answered questions ahead of time. So it was uh, really rewarding to work on this bipartisan bill that ended up passing unanimously in the Senate, which is extremely rare given our political environment today. And then of course, the unrest that you're speaking of about last year, that was all around COVID. Um, but I'm glad to hear that, that that is gone now and you were able to move this bill and the other bill that you talked about, about special education forward. Representative Garrett, uh, how did you make it work in the House? The House Education Committee is extremely collegial. Um, we're, you know, we have the majority Democrats because we're the majority party and the Republicans, but we really communicate and really discuss things. So this bill got a lot of support for two reasons. It's fiscally responsible to our New Mexican taxpayers. The taxpayers are the beneficiaries. There's that use of buildings. Buildings don't set aside, we use them. And then I think the other thing was just the health and safety of our students and our educational staffs. We want, no matter what type of school situation it is, we want our kids to be safe. And so on that basis, uh, the education committee re recommended it. It went to our house appropriations. Um, again, the charter school leaders really worked with our New Mexico Finance Authority to get the right kind of funding, revolving fund. Since schools don't have revenues, they changed it um, in the course of being amended, the bill changed to the appropriate way of funding it. So there was just great collaboration to get this job done, to benefit our kids and to benefit the taxpayers. You know, at Progressive Policy Institute, our catch slogan is radically pragmatic, and that is extremely radically pragmatic, so we love that. Um, last year was the 30th anniversary of the first charter school law, which of course was passed in Minnesota, and um, for decades, charter schools had bipartisan support. Every president um, 
Obama, Bush, Clinton, you know, as the, as the White House went back and forth between Democrat and Republican uh, and state legislatures as well. Um, but now Democrats have really turned their backs on charter schools. And a lot of it has to do with the leadership in the teachers union. Now, I'm not talking about teachers, individual teachers. I'm talking about the unions. Um, how did the unions react to this bipartisan bill in New Mexico? I know that New Mexico is not a, a right to work state, but uh, the unions not considered to be one of the strongest either. Did they put up a fuss? I'm a very active union member, now a retired union member. Um, the union leadership that I spoke to, and I spoke to both, we have NEA and AFT in our state. Uh, they felt that this was a radically pragmatic bill. You have added two new words to my lexicon. And so um, just as last year, we also passed a bill last year that the um, children of employees in charter schools um, could go to that school. That's another public school practice that the union leadership supported because it keeps families together. It builds more secure education uh, foundation for everybody. So this was not a bill that union leadership opposed in any way. Glad to hear that because um, I follow legislation moving in state houses across the country and in other places, um, they're, they're not as reasonable. And Senator Hempel, I'd like to ask you, um, how can we get more Democrats to stand up for charter schools right to exist? Well, I think key to getting Democrats on board is developing those relationships, having these conversations and talking about how they really, charter schools are not competition with our traditional public schools. There's a place for all of us to provide the service and support to our the students in our communities and families in our communities by working together. So instead of believing that our best option is to operate in silos, looking at the resources in our communities, the charter schools in our communities, and just working together, having those conversations, yes. being able to talk about yes. what yes. services and supports that you offer in the public charter schools as opposed to the traditional public schools and just working together. Representative Garrett, do you agree with that? Because one of the major complaints that opponents uh, to charter schools make repeatedly is that they just drain resources from traditional public schools. I think it's important to understand that New Mexico charters are all public. We do not allow private entities uh, to do them. Um, I think a big issue from a union standpoint is that many schools, because it's an at-will employee situation, a, a teacher doesn't get to necessarily uh, speak up. They can be fired at will. So, so there's employment issues that can be concerning. Um, I know that sometimes a charter school comes in and I, I had a friend, his, one twin had a Hispanic name and one twin had a typical English name and the letter went to the Spanish speaking son. Um, and this is a bilingual family. So I think charters have to be cognizant of some of these sensitivities. I also think that the charters can't come in and say 
all the schools have failed and we're the answer. As, as Senator um, Correa Hemphill said, it has to be a collaborative effort. I toured a school this week. It's an amazing school, brand new building. It has a magnet public, Albuquerque Public Schools, Early College and Career Academy. It has a charter academy, which is Native American Community Academy. And it's housed in our Central New Mexico Community College where they're training teacher cohorts. So to me, the answer isn't our charter schools or public schools, good or bad. The answer to me is collaborating to make models, innovative models that benefit everybody. And that, that's the future I see. It's how do we educate our kids? How do we get the job done in a way that benefits the kids and their families, the staffs, the taxpayers, and produces something that moves education forward. I, I agree. And that actually brings me to the next point that I wanted to, to bring up is that during the pandemic, um, parents had an unprecedented window into the classroom and many of them do not like what they saw. And, you know, um, just to remind our audience, education in this country is most, mostly uh, local responsibility and locally controlled, but it is going to be a big national issue in the upcoming elections. We saw that in Virginia. We're seeing it around the country. Um, and I I don't see Republicans um, on, their, on the offensive including improving schools as an agenda item. I see books being burned. I hear difficult conversations about the way American history should be taught. Lots of arguments about masks and vaccines and all the stuff that we've heard. But I don't hear coming from Republicans as a priority, evolving, innovating, improving education to meet the needs of all students and to meet students where they're at. But at the same time, I don't see Democrats aggressively stepping in to fill a vacuum of leadership on that either. And that really concerns me. How can Democrats position themselves to be leaders on improving education and education reform and meeting families' needs? If you have any thoughts, I would really love to hear them. Um, well, as a school psychologist, it was incredibly important to me to talk about changing the culture of our schools. I really believe that that's key. New Mexico is one of the poorest performing education systems in the country. And so my children, I have children in our public schools right now, and I know how important it is to address the culture of schools. We want our schools to be... Um, a school family where kids like coming, where it feels good to be there, just like that charter school that I toured in Deming. There was a sense of community, a sense of family. When you feel safe, when you feel connected in your school, you are automatically in a higher brain state where you are more readily available, able to learn and remember. When our school communities are based on a traditional discipline, structure that uses punitive tactics to try to control children, 
you're releasing cortisol in the brain, which negatively impacts learning and memory when you try to control children. So we need to move away from trying to control each other to trying to focus on connection because cooperation follows connection. And there's nothing more important to me than being able to model that power of connection in the state legislature and be able to inspire in our schools districts how to replicate that across our schools. And so I do have a speaker coming in the end of April who's got her start. She's a clinical psychologist. She got her start in New Mexico creating the social emotional behavior program that's all about changing the culture of our schools so that we're focused on building community. And so she's going to come and speak to us at our local university. And we have the public education department secretary who will who will be joining me and listening to this. We're, we're hoping that this resonates with some uh, superintendents so we can create some pilot schools in New Mexico and show that when you change the culture of schools, you're addressing um, a attendance, you're addressing discipline referrals, and you're able to recruit and retain teachers because it feels good to be there. Teachers want to feel like they're doing something meaningful for their communities. They want to feel good about the job that they're doing. And this is a way to address that. That's so, that's so important. And um, again, I just, I love everything that, that both of you are doing. Um, Representative Garrett, in South Dakota, the president of the Senate has tried for three years to pass a bill that would bring four schools on a Native American Indian reservation where they are just so poor and the need is so great and the Democrats keep defeating this bill four little charter schools for these poor Native American children who who are, are going to school in conditions that just shouldn't be in this country in 2022. Um, what would you say to Democrats that can't open their minds in a situation like that where the need is so great and the, the solution is such a non-threatening one? I, I would say that it's really important to have some real heart-to-heart -heart conversations it's not about Democrats versus Republicans. I think you really have to set up a win-win situation. And and I don't know the existing school. Is it a BIA school? Is it a public district school? But I think that that's a case where people have to come together and innovate maybe something new um, and, and get all the people at the table you know, the people of the community are the most important people. The tribe can, in New Mexico, a tribe can have a community school or a charter school. The tribe is, can be the organizer of it. So I, I think without knowing the situation, you have to get everybody at the table, um, probably for a couple of days and led by the community members' voices themselves that has to be it. it. It can't just be the legislature. It has to come out of the people. That That's my initial response. Has to be addressed. Um, 
it is so important that the community is engaged and I think parents are engaged like never before. I just hope that we can keep that engagement positive and you don't have um, the National Guard around your capital and people demonstrating with guns ever again. Um, but I want to thank both of you for coming on the podcast today. And um, I am just really thrilled to hear about the work you're doing. It, it's always incredible to meet positive, strong female role models. And uh, your state is very lucky to have you. And um, I'm going to give you guys the last word. So um, Representative Garrett, any, any parting thoughts for my parting thoughts is education is one of the most important things we have to give our children and our families. And so, and we have to communicate across any separations to get it done right. We can't have too much communication and collaboration. So those are my party words. And wise ones they are. Senator Hemphill? Thank you, Tressa, for this opportunity to talk about how important education is. And I just want to end with a story. So one of the inspirations for me running was I have an ancestor who was the first Hispanic woman to ever run for Congress in 1922. And she was recruited by Alice Paul to lead the suffrage movement in New Mexico. And she ended up losing her election because there was this big controversy, she was actually divorced and she was telling people she was widowed because it was so controversial in her day. And her uncle, who was a territorial governor at the time, actually leaked this information to the press. And this negative mailer, if you will, um, caused her to lose the election. But then she came back, she ran for Santa Fe Superintendent of Schools, where it became her platform to fix dilapidated school buildings, to fight for better teacher salary, to advocate for bilingual and bicultural education because she understood the importance of education in New Mexico. So it is the greatest honor of my life to continue her legacy in New Mexico mm -hmm. and work with Representative Garrett to improve our education system. That is an amazing story. And no wonder you are doing such a fantastic job and actually moving the needle, as I said at the top. Um, you were born to it. It's in your it's in your genes. And I'm I'm really glad that you shared that story with us today. And again, congratulations to both of you on House Bill 43 being signed into law. And I look forward to seeing what you do next year in session um, to better education in New Mexico. And I wanna thank our audience for joining with us today. And please uh, don't forget to follow Reinventing America's Schools at RAS underscore education on Twitter. We, uh, we appreciate every follow and we try to provide a lot of great content. So ladies, thank you for being here today and thank you for joining us for this episode of Reinventing America's Schools series on the Radically Pragmatic Podcast. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.